Hello, hello. Welcome to a brand new episode of the SaaS Prince podcast, the podcast for content marketers in SaaS. And I'm your host, Yag. In today's episode, we are going to learn how SaaS companies can use the jobs to be done framework to create content across formats such as blogs, product pages, videos, and a lot more to resonate better with your customers. To discuss that with us, today we have the man himself, Bob Moesta, one of the pioneers of the Jobs to be Done framework along with Clayton Christensen. Bob is a founder, creator, innovator, speaker, and also a professor. As a co-founder and president of the Rewired Group, he helps leaders and companies repeatedly innovate, reliably predict, and drive lasting success. I'm personally thrilled to be catching up with him after a gap of two years and more importantly, to explore content strategy from the lens of Jobs to be done. So without any further ado, hey ho, let's go. Hey, Yang, how are you, man? I'm doing fantastic, Bob. How are you? I am great. It's, uh, you're giving me a really good break to my day. It's like a perfect uh, time of the day. It's like, I'm re- it's, for us, it's, it's about 1130. So for me, it's like I've, we've just crunched all, all morning and like this is going to be a, a, a break to let my mind uh, kind of like wander, which will be fun. So I'm yeah, happy absolutely. to be here and, and I love to share. Like, uh, like, like the hard part to me is when you read that, like I, I, we didn't talk about it, but I always say, say as little as possible because like when you read all those things, it's like, I'm just a regular guy. Like I, I just like to build shit and just like, I like to make things and I like to help people. Like that's just what I do. And so all those other titles are kind of irrelevant compared to that. No, I, I totally understand. And, uh, but the thing is, you know, when, uh, there are, uh, people, new listeners who might not have context that really helps to go on, dig more content about you. So that's, that's great. But more than everything, I'm absolutely thrilled here. Yeah. So the thing I will tell you that, that I want, like the other half of the story is for people to realize, like, um, I'm, I'm dyslexic, um, ADHD. I've had three close head brain injuries before I'm seven. Uh, I, I can't read and write. And it's like, and I failed out of school many times. And so it's one of these things where as much as it sounds like I've been successful, I think struggling moments in my life have caused me to be better. And being able to learn how to innovate around those struggling moments is what is the seed of all this. And so innovation starts with struggling moments, not with product, not with marketing, but it starts with where people struggle, where they want to make progress and they can't. And that's really the whole premise around jobs to be done is, is that people don't buy things. They hire them to make progress in their life. And so it's taking a step back from what, what do they want in the product to what are the outcomes they want? And what, it, what makes the conditions right today to say, today, I need to do something different? No, absolutely. And sometimes, you know, behind all these yachts, um, you come in and make a difference and you inspire. So that's, that's where I think um, we're all amazed. And that's, that's what makes us feel like we have a lot to learn from. So yeah, let's, let's get started. You know, um, you have worked with a lot of companies and have helped them with their core jobs to be done. Mm-hmm. So let's today look at it from a SaaS content perspective. Yep. You know, uh, How do we understand how people buy? And more importantly, what I'm interested to understand and explore is how can that tactically influence the way somebody markets a product using content? The the first, I, I think I, it starts with me going back, developing some of my first products of where I assumed I knew what customers wanted or they would tell me certain words to say like, oh, I want this fast or I want this easy. Right. Or they wouldn't actually tell me they want it fast or easy. They, they would tell me it's the this current thing I have is too hard or this is too slow. And so I would then assume that hard meant easy and that uh, uh, slow meant fast. But it turns out that that over time, I realized that people don't aren't are as articulate as we want them to be and that ultimately they'll say anything we want them to say and surveys. And so part of this is to actually learn a do method. And, and I, to be honest, I started learning criminal and intelligence interrogation because I realized that most people lie about what they do or what they did or what they want. And, and, and you start to realize that change is about the abnormal. Most people do research about what people normally do. And so what happens is, is that we then see what people normally do and then we try to interrupt what they normally do. And what jobs to be done is about is actually looking at people and say, where do they change and why do they change? And what are the conditions and the circumstances that make that ready to change? And then how do I go make those things happen? 
And so it's ultimately trying to create the space and time for people to be ready to change as opposed to convince people to buy my product. No, that makes a lot of sense. Maybe, you know, um, to understand this better, maybe let's go one level deeper. Let's take an example. Let's talk about, say, a product page on a SaaS website. Okay. Um, So from your experience, what's the jobs to be done for that particular product page? The reason I'm asking is I want all of us content marketers to get a sense of what we should try and address on that page. Yeah. I think so. The first thing is, is, is in, in, in my mind, it's like, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of places like intercom or, or base camp or, you know, uh, uh, I don't know if I can say anymore. Um, but, there, but, but those kinds of places, right? And so the first thing is, is what, what's really interesting is that most, most people, when they're building the website, they assume that, that people know a lot already. Or they assume they know nothing and, and then they build everything from that premise. And so part of it is, for example, it, it, in, at Intercom, one of the things we found is, is very early on is that people were very problem aware, but they were very solution unaware. And so the first part of the messaging in the, in the page was about the struggling moment that they had. So they go like, yeah, I'm in the right place. Because the moment they started talking about the features and benefits, they're like, yeah, I don't need chat. I don't need that. Like I, I need to convert and they don't understand how to do those things. And so part of it is, is you, is what I would say is a good product page has the struggling moments that you, that help people go like, yep, that's me or nope, that's not me. And so part of it is the, is the more you can be uh, concise about the struggling moment because it's jobs is about this notion of that the, there's a circumstance and an outcome that people want. And ultimately what are the two or three cir- or four circumstances people find themselves in where they're looking and reaching for your product. Right. The second thing then, and this is very, by the way, this is very hard for marketers to do because they want to talk about the product. They've been taught that features and benefits and more features means people will buy more. And you start to realize like a lot of those premises are wrong. And so, for me, I start with basically what is the struggling moment? What is the problem that we help you solve, right? And then ultimately, what are the outcomes that you're seeking? Not the outputs, not the not the requirements, but what is the outcome you're actually trying to get to? And so you start to realize, like, if they agree that I have this problem and I want this outcome, then they're actually willing to start to dive into, well, what's the product and how does it work? They're willing to dive into the solution. And so most people are so afraid from the brand recognition perspective that they don't want to talk about the problem they solve because they're like, oh, we'll get associated with the problem. But it's almost very, very rare that that happens. So, so a, a very simple example is I worked at a, a, a candy bar uh, in, the, in the 90s called Snickers, which is, uh, you know, it's uh, chocolate and caramel and peanuts. And uh, I don't know. Do you have Snickers? Yeah. Okay. And so one of the things was, is it's like, you know, and they kept thinking that Snickers competed with Milky Way. But if you actually talk to people of when they bought a Milky Way and when they bought a Snickers and when they ate it, it was completely different situations. You know, Snickers came when it was like, uh, I hadn't eaten before. I've got a lot of work to do. My stomach is growling. I need a little bit of energy. I don't want to spoil my next meal. And I'm not really myself because I'm hungry. So give me a little bit enough to basically get me back to myself. And, and they came up with the word hangry, like, like the customer did, not, not anybody else. It's like, yeah, I, I'm hungry and angry. It's just like I need a Snickers. And that's where, we, that's where it came out of. And then ultimately, uh, they came up with uh, different commercials that showed people struggling moments and then basically the outcome of becoming themselves again. And ultimately, that, that helped grow sales like almost 5x. <laughs> Right. But it was also about understanding kind of what and, and to be honest, to know that Snickers doesn't compete with Milky Way. Milky Way competes with a glass of wine, an ice cream, a run. Like it's about taking some time for myself and being in and, and trying to build some joy. And you start to realize like the, the competitive sets are very, very different. The thing that is exciting about this example to me is, you know, I can directly think about it uh, when people go about creating, say, for example, uh, product comparison pages. You know, I'm saying that I'm an alternative to this company. Uh-huh. And um, that's that's where I think, uh, you know, it's it's very it gets very interesting when you switch from one product to another here. You know, you spoke about uh, two different candies and mm-hmm. um, you understood that though they were in the same category technically. But they solve yeah. different purposes. But when you look at, say, for example, a CRM or a live chat tool or any yep. of those things, and say somebody says, I'm, I'm shifting from Drift to Intercom or Intercom to something else. Yep. And now they're all solving a very similar problem. So how, how do we address that? Or do you still think that even the same categories, maybe 
uh, two products can so, solve entirely different problems. So what's interesting is that most categories are created by the supply side. And they're, they're, they're created by kind of the business model they have, the economics of the situation, the product attributes that are involved, the, the channels that they use. Like we're in a B2B business or we're, we're in a B2C business or we're a, you know, we're, we're a retailer. No, we're a manufacturer. No, we're a software company. Like everybody, we're a CRM company and, and everybody kinds of segments it smaller and smaller and smaller. But when you, when you hop over the wall and you look at it from the customer side, most CRM competes with Excel versus anything else. And so we end up trying to say like, oh, we compare ourselves to these five other people. And they're like, oh, let me go look at those five other people. And the reality is if you just talk about the struggling moment and what's going on, most people, when, when they can see the problem and that you, un you actually gave them words to the problem they couldn't articulate, they assume you have the solution. And so part of this is we, a lot of people have what I call the wrong reference point because their reference point is the category and all my direct competitors when the fact is, is again, so I worked on mattresses. The greatest competitor to a new mattress is a bottle of scotch. Really? <laughs> people will literally have a, a glass of scotch before they go, or a glass of alcohol before they go to bed because they think it helps them sleep and it really doesn't. A bottle of Zequil is a, is a competitor to a new mattress. And you start to realize when they're only problem aware, they have no categories. And when they're, they don't know how to narrow the solution, they're actually very, very na naive about what to do about it. This is where people are buying topper. They're buying all these other things. And then eventually when none of them work, they kind of go like, hmm, maybe it's the mattress. When did we get the last mattress? <laughs> and you start to realize it's like 15 years ago. I'm like, oh my God, the mattress is great. And so you start to realize like, these are the things where, where we have to take on an empathetic perspective from the customer's eyes, not from the omniscient or from a, from a, like a, you know, a, a God, like I look down on the category and who's in the category kind of thing. It's just not, it, it doesn't really work that way. No, let me, let me paint a slightly different picture here. Uh, so for example, when somebody's, uh, my, my logic so far as a content marketer, when I approach these pages is more like, Hey, somebody is comparing my product with that probably you know these guys have taken a demo with them they have certain yep. perspectives first they are going to look at uh, uh do they do we have feature parity with them but then fundamentally they also want to know how we are different from those people so that content is always focused on the assumption that somebody already knows this market and yep. they are doing these comparisons and this is how we are different from somebody and this is how we're going to solve for it so does it make it very cliche does it not talk to the core problem of what they have it, it, no, because what happens is, is that, that at some point we don't know which one of the things is really pushing them or pulling them to where they want to go. And so we assume that everybody wants the same outcomes and they don't, and they actually make very different trade-offs. So, so think of like Basecamp, right? The number of people who ask for resource allocation and Gantt charts and like, it's, it's a, it's a request that comes in every, every day, to be honest. But the reality is, is the thing they value is that it's so simple, you know, your, your, your grandparent can use it. And so the, the notion is if I add all these other things to it, it doesn't make it easier. It actually makes it harder. And so part of this is to know where are the trade-offs you're willing to make. And so, so if I'm trying to build the best project management software, then all of a sudden I'm going to compare myself to all project managers. But if I'm trying to build the best collaboration software and it gets back to who's describing this, you or the customer. And in the end, the customer is the one who defines it all. We want, we might want to say we want it to be this. We want to be seen as a very global brand, but they perceive us as a global brand or they don't. That's not, that's like, like we can't cause that per se. <laughs> so the, the, the fundamental premise here is, or my, you know, the curious aspect that I have right now from what I hear is that can this work on scale? Because at the end of the day, uh, you know, every single company who's producing this content or creating this page are yeah. trying to drive some revenue numbers. And yeah. uh, is it possible to go after every um, customer persona and try and understand um, what is the core jobs to be done? Or are we looking at certain factors and saying that, can I oh, assume yeah. that this is happening at scale? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so it depends. So there's, what's interesting is that this takes me to the topic of like TAM, the total addressable market. It's actually not well thought out because the total addressable market is what people say is like, well, how many accounting firms are there that, that need CRM? It's like, well, there's 18,000 people who are 18,000 accounting firms. Well, that's the TAM. It's like, no, 
how many accounting firms are struggling with CRM? That's the TAM, right? Because if they're happy or they don't need one or they're not struggling, they're not looking for one and you can't convince them, right? They, this is the thing is we don't convince them. They convince themselves. And so part of it is, is what's the fuel we have to provide them to actually help make the decision? And, and ultimately, the fact is, is what's so interesting is most of the time, uh, let's say in the SaaS, uh, SaaS in the B2B world, over 60% of the proposals that are given are not acted upon. And one of the reasons why they're not acted upon is not because they don't have the problem and they don't have the outcome. It's because they don't know how to make the decision or the trade-offs required to make the decision. And so they'd rather wait for the problem to get worse before they finally say like, fine, we'll get rid of the old data. Don't worry about it. We'll move on. Right. So you start to realize that it's, it's, it's context that drives people to change the value code, not, 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 not the, not the end product. The product is merely a mirror to them. Like I was working on copy the other day for, with a company called Nutrisense and, and they want, they, 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 they had a phrase in there. Like, so they asked something along the lines. So, so what's your, what's your biggest health goal for this year? Right. And, and my thing is, 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 is the way that they wanted to do it is, is it's like me talking to them. And what I said is the copy should be is like my biggest health goal for the year is, and then write the statements because it's like what I want this, what I want the landing page to be is, is it's a reflection of what I, how I'm thinking about it. And so most of the time I would say like, yeah, you know, help me, you know, help me lose weight. Help me get my A1C down. Like, like what are the words that I, and it's about what I would say about me. It's like, no, we want to help you get your A1C down. Very different phrase. So it's the subtleties of this uh, empathy of understanding what are they saying and the way you write it. So it's almost like they're talking to themselves, right? It's very, very different where we, most marketers are trained to be like broadcast, like the billboard or the, or the, the advertisement. <laughs> and what we really want to do is the more you can actually help understand and give them language they haven't seen, like the struggling moments they see, and then help them understand the progress they're trying to make all of a sudden in the, in a frame that basically says, yeah, that's what I want. That's how they build comfort. And so the way we learn all this is basically through jobs to be done interviews that then tell us what caused people to say today's the day they, they needed something new and how they chose one thing over another. And so when you get to, to answer your earlier question of, does this cover the entire market? What I say is this is, so the market is in my mind is always infinite because it gets back to how many struggling moments there are and can I cause struggling moments? And so part of this is to realize like the way that jobs works is this is the, uh, the Pareto principle. What are the 20% of the causes that, that actually lead to 80% of the effects and that I can learn more with having it, thinking about it from that perspective than trying to actually say, how do I cover everybody? The other part is it helps you eliminate the, the anomalies that drive you crazy, especially in the small startup world that like you, like if you think of your worst customers, they're the ones who really shouldn't be customers because you don't really solve their problem. <laughs> right. And we can't say no to that. And so the, what jobs does is it helps you kind of say like, mm, no, we don't do that well. And by the way, you cost us a lot more than we can, than you're willing to pay. For what this is. <laughs> right. Right. No, I'm loving this conversation. Now let's lightly, you know, think about the same thing from say what the Snickers example that you gave, for example, yeah. is brilliant when you look at a product that solves a single particular problem. But, you know, uh, especially in the world of SaaS, what happens is there are more and more all-in-one products, which say, uh, you know, there is a product that also does meeting scheduling. There is yep. uh, the same product also does note-taking. The yep. same product probably also maybe does forecasting. There are tons of things happening at a time. And each of these are catering to different problems at yep. different stages. Yep. So uh, how how... I mean, on what basis does one go about find, uh, finding these struggling moments? Yeah. And so, what kind of people, what kind of groups do we gather first? So, so I worked with Intuit over 20 years ago. And one of the things I would say is what causes somebody to say, today's the day as a small business, I need an accounting system. What causes them to say today's the day? And the thing is, is if I sit in a conference room and think about it, I can come up with a hundred ways. But when I actually go to the market and say, and talk to small businesses and say like, okay, you got an account, like what caused you to say today's a day? And it was only two real reasons. I either couldn't get paid, my invoicing system didn't work, 
or because I was using Excel or using uh, uh, Word and I sent the invoice and then they lost it, but I don't remember where it was. And then, I, and it's like, okay, I got to have some, the other is I've got taxes. And then the third was basically something along the lines of um, uh, I, it's very difficult to pay people. And so if you go to QuickBooks, their, their set of advertising all starts with only those three angles. Right. But then what they did is they basically just follow the, the users and say, what are you struggling with now? And next thing you know, it's like, oh, we need payroll. Oh, we need uh, uh, investing. Oh, we need, you know, uh, credit cards. Oh, we need banking. Like, and you start to realize that all they've done over the last 20 years is look at every struggling moment they solved usually creates a new one. Think of it as like you've got a list of problems. You solve the first one and then that one goes away and then the second one becomes the first one. And so they're just looking at the natural progression of struggling moments. And then ultimately, for example, as they looked at basically, you know, we help people, right, who, uh, who don't want, ultimately, I don't want to hire somebody to do, I'm a small business. I don't want to hire somebody to do my accounting. I want literally to hire somebody to be a painter. I want somebody to be a baker. I want to, I want to hire people to help me do the business, not work in the business, right? And so ultimately is that that's that was the other part about being simple. And so you start to realize that marketing had the same thing. And so in the last what two years they bought MailChimp because it's all the same struggling moments. They have the, all the problems they have with accounting, they have the same problems with marketing. No, that's right? absolutely and so brilliant. now they're they're, they're they're I think they're over 15 billion. I mean it's ridiculous. Yeah. 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 So, so the core is probably to identify what is the biggest pain and prioritize that first. Is that is that the direction? So, so I wanna yeah I wanna I wanna get rid of the word pain because we assume a pain is acute enough that like I broke my leg I need a, I need to go to the, the hospital and that's where it's like I need to take action only when something's broken or there's enough pain and what you start to realize is that. The pain actually grows over time and you don't do anything about it until you can't do something you want to do. Right. And so ultimately it's not about the pain. It's about the context where you realize that I can't do what I want to do anymore. Right. And so this is where, so for example, one of the things is, is I've been, I've been a large person my whole life. Um, uh, I was at one point, 290 pounds. I played uh, football in co uh, American football in college. I, I, I was always in the Husky section since I was a young kid. And, <laughs> you know, in the last, in the last two years, I've lost 90 pounds. And like, you could say, well, what caused you to do that? And, and people say, well, you know, it's like, you know, I've had the knowledge about how to lose weight along. I knew how to do it. Yeah. So it's not a, it's not a knowledge problem. Right. And then all of a sudden you start to realize like, so what started to cause it? And what really happened was my kids moved out of the house. And I realized that the only time I would spend time with my kids is doing things, walking, hiking, skiing, uh, uh, fishing, rafting, like doing things. And at 290 pounds, I couldn't do that. And so my wow. thing is, if I want, if I want to spend time with my kids, I made it very emotional. Like I got to lose weight. Right. And the interesting part is I started by measuring weight but the reality is like weight is not the goal. The goal is to go out with my kids and do stuff with my kids. Mm -hmm. And the other part is when I actually have the right metrics, which is how many steps do I do every day? How many calories do I eat? And where's my blood sugar? I literally, those three metrics, I don't have to step on the scale anymore. And so part mm -hmm. of this is realizing the outcomes are way more important than the outputs. Just me weighing now 205 pounds, right? Is, is to the point where it's like, you know, that's great. But look, I got 30 days of skiing in this year. <laughs> that's the right. outcome. That's the progress with my kids. The biggest revelation out of what he just said to me is the way people define outcomes. Generally, people think that, hey, using my tool, this is what you will get. Yes. Uh, no, no, no. Uh, actually, what you're saying is people use your tool because they are feeling this and they want to feel X. That's something right. Something like that. The, 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 other, the other part is that so the, the, the word I use is we assume symmetry. So when somebody says, oh my God, it's so hard. Okay, we got to make it easier. It turns out that so hard turns out to be like, no, I want to do it faster. <laughs> and you start right. to realize like we misinterpret what people mean because we don't hear both sides of the equation and that change has both a, a push and a negative part and a pull and a positive part. And we need to understand both of that. And, and a push without any pull is just frustration. 
and a and a pull without a push is literally a fantasy. Wow. <laughs> right? <laughs> yes, absolutely. You know, it it makes me wonder that hey, somebody has this golden opportunity of, you know, say working with a CS team and getting this list of customers and scheduling an interview with them. Yeah. And 99% of the people blow up the opportunity to ask the right questions to understand these things. Uh, so yeah. <laughs> do you um have say a, a blueprint or a framework in your mind saying that at yeah. least fundamentally ask these three questions so that you get yeah, to yeah, understand. Yeah. So, so again, I, so first of all, I never talk to people who want to buy my product because at some point they haven't gone through the process. And if they haven't gone through the process, it's all fa- like, like I built houses. So it's like, Oh, what do you want? I want stainless steel appliances. I want hardwood floors. I want this. I want, you know, uh, you know, slate roof. I want, and then when you look at what people buy, they bought none of that. <laughs> right. And so part of this is that you, that's why you can't ask your customer to design your product because they really don't know what they want. But what you do is, is you go and look at what people actually bought. And so in some cases, if I wasn't building houses, I go talk to people who built houses and said, like, why'd you buy this house? What'd you do? Why now? What, what was going on? And you start to realize that moving is actually more about, uh, it's more about moving than it's about building, getting rid of the old house and moving to a new house. And it's about actually starting a new life. And we said, you know, move on, move up, start building a better life. And that was the tagline we had wrapped around it. And everything was about how do we help you move on and move up? And because whether you were actually downsizing or, or upsizing, every time everybody was feeling like they were going to a better place. Right? And so ultimately, we'd ask them, why are they moving? Why did they move? What was going on? What pushed them to say today was the day they had to move? And the interesting part is I never ask them about the product. Never. And when they talk about the product, I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Why is that important? Why is that relevant? I'm trying to see it from their side, not from my side. Most people, when they do this research, they, they take it from a marketing research perspective as opposed to what I would call as a product perspective, meaning they're trying to understand the person so we can target the person. So we know the language to say to the person we need to know. And my thing is, is like, no, we need to talk about not the only the person, but it's who, when, where, and why it's not just who. And so it's understanding that part of it. That makes that so important. No, when you break it down that way, it's, it's like, it becomes so obvious, but uh, you know, it's, it's not something that comes naturally in the no. moment. No, it doesn't. Um, the, the, the book I can recommend on it that would really help is I, I, uh, like I said, I learned, um, very early that most tradition, like, so most people say, well, write a survey, right? Well, as a dyslexic, that's the most intimidating thing I could ever think of. Like, first of all, I'm not smart enough to even know the questions to ask. I'm not, I don't even know the answers I should write down. And so all of a sudden, and most people are like, oh, I can write them. And then when you get the survey back, it's all the answers we wanted to hear. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And so yeah. part of this would be is like, let me go talk to 10 people and just like get like get oriented because at some point in time, I don't feel I know what they mean by things because even though I might eat Snickers, I'm not sure I understand how all the different ways people want Snickers. Yeah. And so it's about empathy and understanding it from their perspective, not from my perspective. Right, right. No, I'm loving this conversation. You're actually blowing my mind. <laughs> this is uh, awesome. Cool. So let's talk about, uh, you know, jobs to be done from a so product. Wait a second. So wait a second. I got to go back for a yeah. second. What what, yeah. what did I say that I, I have the, you, I've known you've been following you for a while. Like, I don't feel like anything I've said, blow, what has blown your mind? So to me, what is really interesting, what really blew my mind is that, you know, when you sit in front of a conversation, uh, it's it's fairly simple to ask this question that what made you take this decision today? Right. Yeah. So that to me is very, very insightful because generally when I go about buying a product, yes, I might have, I'll give you an example. Uh, say if I want to buy a car. Okay, no, 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 ask, no, 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 no. Let's find what is something you bought recently. Let's talk about, let's talk real day. See, this is the difference. Most people want to talk theoretically. Yeah. Let's talk about something you recently bought. Right. Let's talk about a shoe that I recently bought. You okay. bought shoes. How many, how many yes. pairs of shoes do you have? Just two. You only have two pairs of shoes. Yeah. And you bought a new one. So you have three or no, this was you, the second one. This was the, this second, is the one. second one. You've only yeah. had one pair of shoes yeah. the entire time. And you finally bought a new pair of shoes. What was going yeah. on that said you needed a new pair of shoes? Right. So the first shoe that I already had, uh, it was a trekking shoe. And yeah. uh, I wanted a shoe that I could use for my gym and for jogging. 
So that is the reason that I bought it. Doesn't the other shoe work for that or not? It does, but I have never used that shoe for this. And it's my mindset that I want to keep that shoe only for trekking and not for anything else. And I don't use it locally. And so it's specifically for this, this, this activity. Right. And the second reason is also that uh, in the gym, I am not supposed to use the shoes that I wear outside. It's you're supposed to ah, wear. So, yeah. so, so there's a put one is they told you you couldn't wear your shoes anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and so, okay. So now, so they, so one, the force was, is like, there's a policy they created that basically said you can't wear these shoes inside. And how long did you actually cheat? I did not. So I bought it even on the uh, day one. The first I went day. To. So you joined yeah, the gym yeah. and basically, okay, this is this, the rules. All right. I'm going to go buy a pair of shoes because I don't want to break the rules. Yes. What were you afraid of? Just that I uh, didn't want to uh, be uh, wearing dirty shoes and uh, break the rules. So that was about it. And, and was, it more about, was it more about getting caught or was it more about respecting the people who were there or both? It was not about getting caught. It was generally about my conscience of following the rules. There you go. Got it. So I just want to go game off for a second. I just, so yeah. I asked you a question and I didn't give, I gave two answers. I gave two right. extremes and I gave them too far enough that you would actually kind of then make it better. My objective when I'm asking you a question is to actually have you tell me no. Oh. Because once you say no, then you can elaborate. But if you right. say yes, all I can do is move on. Wow. So these questions that I ask are literally, these interviews are, are, are 45 minutes to an hour to 90 minutes because I'm literally almost playing with them the entire time to make sure I can get the language out because most people can't yeah. articulate what they want. They can articulate what they don't want. Yeah. <laughs> and and so if you think about it, you know, uh, expanding on why I said no is fairly easier. Yeah. And I can talk about it. <laughs> right, that's right. That, that's right. But most people, so the, the interesting part is like, I always say like the A students will have a hard time with this because the A students want to get yes. The A, A, A students want to get A. They want to have, they want to know the answer. I'm going into this. Like, I have no idea why you did buy a new pair of shoes. Yeah. As opposed to like, so this is where most people, like one of the flaws I think of entrepreneurialism, they, they tell you to build a hypothesis. But what happens when you're not smart enough to build a hypothesis? That's the research Jobs is. Jobs is actually about trying to actually build enough so I can actually form good hypotheses based on empirical data rather than theoretical data and, and trends. It's, it's the empirical data that's so important. That's why I only need 10. And, and the interesting part is, you know, I loved how you went from it. Actually, the reason that uh, this unlocked me was I was looking at it as a shoe and now I look at, oh my God, I actually bought it because that was his rule. And uh, I am supposed to wear and, well, clean shoes. At the you wanted to work out. And so all of a sudden there's a whole new, there, like it's, it was a barrier to you actually achieving something else. And so yeah. the fact is, is you were spending this much for the, for the gym, like I might as well pair the, buy the shoes because you're on a mission that's way bigger than shoes. That's Absolutely. the point is you're, you're, the shoes are the mustard on the sandwich. Right. They're, they're, they're literally a small piece or an ingredient to the bigger progress you want to make. And you don't think about to be honest, you didn't think that hard about the shoes because you're worried about the bigger progress. Yes. Yes. Right. And oh so this is where God. you, you're trying to figure this all out about shoes and this has nothing to do with shoes. This has to do about you getting healthier. You know, actually this, this reveals one more key insight here is that the amount of time I spent in buying the shoe is less than five minutes in the shop. <laughs> so that because, that confirms your uh, wait 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 because why because the reason was the priority was not uh you know buying this or that shoe or a specific shoe the the priority was always just the gym and not this so here's the thing is you have no idea how comfortable they're going to be you don't know how they're going to wear you don't know actually if they're really going to be good for what it's there but the criteria was i just needed a second pair of shoes that i couldn't wear from the street on the thing and like these look good enough but you actually no, the don't comfort have a, does come in. The comfort does yeah, yeah, come in because but, I, I how, have to. So let me ask this. How did you judge comfort? By wearing uh, four different shoes and trying which is more comfortable for me. And what, what did you like? Like, so tell me like the process. Did you put them on different feet? Did you put them on both feet? How, how did you? Yeah, I selected like four pairs and I tried all of them on on both feet. Um, you know, walked around the shop and uh, tried and, out and which feet. Did look have anything to do with it? The look definitely had something to do with it. Uh, okay. So it, 
that's definitely there. So which one? So tell me about. So so here's so here's here's another interesting thing, and I'm just yeah. going to tell you that you're going to laugh because this is like I, I'm going to. I'm going to try to tell you how you made this decision, which is so interesting is most of the time people need three or more options to make a decision. Right. Because here's the thing is most people don't choose what they want. They eliminate. And so what happened is you had four pair of shoes and you wore them and you said, Oh, that one's out. It's, it doesn't look, it doesn't look as good as the other ones. And then like, this one's a little less comfortable. And then, what happens is you compare them to the ones you already made decisions about. So you yes. actually eliminate the three and get to the one and say, yeah, I'll take the one. But you actually didn't pick the one. You eliminated the other three and you needed the contrast to create the meaning of what was the best shoe. And it gave you confidence to know that that was the shoe that you wanted. Oh, my God. It was like you were literally with me on the show, uh, on the shop because I first tried the one. I first tried the one that I actually bought. But then I went on to try the other three and then yeah. came back to this one. <laughs> yeah. But you had to build the confidence to know that this was the one and why it wasn't. And then you can compare it to say like, yeah, not this one because of that. And you were eliminating more than anything else. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The other part is most people, the first round of selection for shoes happens at the store where you pick it up and hold it in your hand before you even put it on. And so there's the visual part and then there's the tactile part. And then there's like, okay, do they have my size? But it's yeah. a very interesting process of how people go through this uh, process to do that. But the thing is, is the context you're in is like, I can't go work out until I actually get a new pair of shoes. So yeah. the criteria you have are very low. <laughs> oh, my God. It's not about this shoes. It's about actually yeah. getting to the gym. Yeah, yeah. No, this is just... So this, but this is where, where most marketers are going to say, I want to make the, the shoe a bigger deal. I want to make it more impressive. And the reality is, is like, you didn't even see that shoe. <laughs> you couldn't even see it. Yeah. If anything, you said, that's ah, too much. I don't need that. That's way too expensive. I don't even know why it costs so much. This is so on point. And I, I did not even think about the brand, to be honest. So, and uh, it's not even a branded shoe. So, it, it so, answers so, so my belief is that you'll end up eliminating brands as opposed to including brands. So be like, no, I don't want this brand or that brand because they, they, it either represents me or doesn't represent me that well. And so most people, again, eliminate brands more than they, let's say, include brands. And loyalty, which is so interesting, is, is confused with convenience. Like most loyalty is like, I bought this before. I know it works. I know it's going to work again. I'm going to buy it again. And we, we, we've turned that into that there's loyalty. And what that is, is really a habitual habit. And ultimately the fact is, is when something, when the context changes is when they're going to change. It has nothing to do with loyalty. <laughs> it's a, it's AG Laffley wrote a great paper on like the, the, the myth of loyalty and how, how, you know, when you try to manage it, it's actually, it doesn't work. <laughs> No, this is so good. Sorry. While you were explaining this, it also takes me to a parallel um, of what you spoke about in another podcast or somewhere uh, about product-led. You know, um, I'm just comparing this exact example of what you're saying. And at that point, you said that, uh, hey, product-led is generally about, um, you know, how well you educate uh, the customer within the product. And the the funny part is, I'll I'll give you an entirely different example. There's a product called Ahrefs, which all of us use for SEO-related volume search and all of that. And what happens is 90% of the people who use the product already know how to use the product and the education. It's a product-led company. Uh, There's no real salesperson. And people buy it online. And the point is the education does not happen within the product after buying it. It's it's a marketing education that happens much before people actually end up buying the product. So yep. how does, uh, so what is your lens? Can you expand on uh, what approach should a product-led company take to educate their uh, company? Should it be inside the product? Should it be marketing? How the company needs to be led is based on kind of the talent that's in the organization. Like I, I like everybody would say like, well, you should have a standard innovation process or a standard marketing process. And my, my belief is the process should be, should be kind of mapped to the, the capabilities and the capacity and the requirements of the organization. And so some organizations should be more product-led because the industry they're serving is way more product-intensive, like cars, right? Where, where you could say that, that cars are marketing-led, 
But for the most part, everything in that business is all about what, what's the next round, what's going on. Marketing is literally like icing on the cake, right? And so when you look at companies like really big brand companies like uh, P&G, right? The, uh, one of the, the, uh, the, I think he's retired now, CMOs basically said, he goes, my, my job's actually really, really easy. He goes, the hard one is Kathy Fish, who's the head of uh, uh, technology. And she go, he goes, the thing is, is I can slap the Tide brand on anything and it will sell. <laughs> and oh, by the way, I only could build that ability because Tide works and Kathy made it work. And so the thing is, is Kathy actually has to be the one to understand where's the struggling moment for people? Where's the product really going to be? How do we actually know we can do it? And then adding Tide to it is just like the Kickstarter that actually helps it go faster but it doesn't actually make the product better. The product still has to do the job. And so this is where there's a difference between what we call the big hire, which is buying, let's say, uh, the bottle of Windex and the little hire, which is spraying the bottle of Windex. And so part of it is to realize that people usually fire because of the little hires and the big hires are made on on, uh, assumptions of what progress they wanna make. And so you have to actually understand understand both. Because if I just make it so people want to buy it and it doesn't do the job, they're going to fire it. And if I make it do the job, but actually people don't know about it, then they don't buy it. So it's it's a very interesting dichotomy of, I sometimes have to have the jobs of a buyer and the job of a user and actually understand how they work. So think of it as like, so I built, uh, I designed toys for, for Mattel, right? And if you design the toys that parents wanted, kids would never play with it. And if I designed the flamethrower that the kids wanted, parents would never buy it. <laughs> and so you had to figure out what's the, where's the happy medium between the two that enables it and where the, where the boundaries where it's going to work and not going to work. And you had to realize if you didn't make that alignment, you were not going to sell anything. No, let me, let me bring the same example for the product, right? So uh, let's say here in the case, um, the marketer, the, the SEO analyst is the, the buyer as well as the end user. So he or she also needs to know that this is how this product helps me. This is what the product does and all of that. Mm -hmm. And then once they buy and start using it, if there are going to be any issues, they also need to have education on how do I actually fix this problem or how do I use it to do X, Y, and Z. But the starting point always comes from, you know, me having the comfort in my mindset that if I invest on this product, I'll be able to use it because I already know to use it. Yep. So, so for example, one of the things that Basecamp we got rid of was like the free trial. Because the trial was like limited to like five weeks or six weeks. And what you realize is when they had a limited amount of time, they'd only pour so much in and they'd never actually fully experienced the product enough. So what we did is we created Basecamp Personal, which is you get one project, unlimited people, unlimited you know, tasks and everything else, but you only get one project and you can use it for a vacation. You can use it for moving. You can use it for, you can use it for, but it's, you get one project for free. And then what we found is people then would pile everything in and they learned how to use it and then they'd actually switch. And so part of it is to realize like, how do people think about trials and how do people actually think about these things and how do they actually get into them? And so in, in the jobs to be done framework, we have this notion of the timeline and that there's, there's a first thought. And the way that I say that is questions create spaces in the brain for solutions to fall into is like, if there's not a question in your head, you're not looking for a new pair of gym shoes. If they didn't ask you to say you, if you would have worn your gym shoe, you could wear the street shoes in the gym, you would have, you would have never bought those shoes. Right. And so part of it is there's always that kind of trigger, but then there's the notion of uh, problem aware, right? The passive looking, I'd need to know, is this really a problem I have to do something about? And then there's basically what, what are my choices? And how do I decide? And so we have to actually understand that people are in these phases and they're, they're very different conversations with themselves. So like in passive looking, it's like, is this a problem? How big is it? How much does it cost to get rid of this? Like, do I really need to do anything about it? Right? There's all these. And then when you get to basically what we call active looking, it's like, well, what's the difference between this one and that one? And why do I need that feature? And, and, and then when you get to deciding, it's like, will I use that? Do I need this? How much is it? Like, there's all these trade-offs you have to make. And so you realize there's different forms of marketing I need at each phase of how people are thinking, as opposed to literally like, how do I... I feel like most marketers are, 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 are trying to fire a cannon. They're trying to pack every word they can into a, into a cannon and then literally figure out how to light the fuse to just jam people through the sales funnel. <laughs> <laughs> that hurts. Reality, like, yeah, that's people not- buy on their terms, not ours. Right? This is why, yeah. So I wrote a book called Demand Side Sales. 
And yes. I wrote it primarily because um, there's a couple of reasons, but one is um, in going to business school, I had no sales classes and I'm literally thinking I've done seven startups or eight startups now. And it's one of those things where I'm like, why did I get no sales training of any sort when I was in business school? Cause it's the hardest thing I have to do for everything. And so I realized that, that, that sales was seen as a psychology thing and a product thing and a marketing thing. And that ultimately it was, it was more that it was very specific to each company. But the reality is, is that the sales process is a supply side concept. It's how we want to sell, but the way we need to actually design it is how do people want to buy? And that's jobs to be done. And that's where that came out. And so you start to realize that these phases are really, really important because they're, it's almost like the mentality they have when they're going, when they're, when they're like, when they have the questions and they're looking for the answers. And the thing is, is if you give them the wrong answer at the wrong time, or you give them the right answer at the wrong time, they're not going to get it. And so you need to know where they are and we need to meet people where they're at, as opposed to trying to push people through the funnel. That's why I like Claire, Claire, Selentrope and Gia, they have a, they have a business called forget the funnel. And that's exactly right. It's like, forget the fun. Like the funnel is not, this is where we force the sales process right? To generate revenue. And you have to realize the process, the sales process is actually run more by finance than sales. Think about it. When can I give a discount? At the end of a quarter. Why is that? Oh, because we didn't meet our forecast. Oh, so if we close three more deals and I can give you a that discounting behavior literally destroys the sales process altogether every single time. Drives me out of my yeah. mind. <laughs> No, truth bombs everywhere. <laughs> I can't even Sorry. recover from this. <laughs> but I no, think part of, part, part of my role is to, is like, again, I, I'm, I'm on the spectrum, right? There's one of these things where I think differently and I've, 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 been, I've been slowly letting people understand how I think about things. And I just, I'm, I'm more trying to get people to think deeper about these things that we assume and, and that realizing like, you know, Everybody wants a community, but what does a community mean to, to individuals and why what's a community to you is different than what a community is to me. And though everybody can agree on community, it's like, oh, we've got a great community. It doesn't mean crap to anybody because it's too high. It's like, oh, yeah. I can go learn from other people. Oh, we can collaborate on things. Now I got a community. All right. So that brings us to uh, the second half of the conversation, which we call it rapid fire. We run yep. this more like a game show. I'm going to shoot five pointed questions at you. The questions might be short, but the answers need not be. You can speak whatever comes to your mind. So are you ready? Okay. So here's question number one. You say that the number one way to align an organization around jobs is to never mention jobs. Yeah. So what does it mean? What that means is, is to be honest, you should always talk about your customers. You should talk about their struggling moments. You should be talking about their trade-offs. You should be talking about their details, what progress they're trying to make. It's all about the customer. Most people get obsessed with the theory and the practice of it as opposed to the customer about it. And this is more about empathy. And so what I, what I would say is I talk about this difference between game on and game off. Game on is, is, the, is where we talk about the content. And that's what, what the jobs are, is the content about the customer. And game off is when we talk about process and process is the jobs is the method by which I get that empathetic perspective. And so to me, most people get too obsessed with the method as opposed to the outcome. And my belief is 10, 20, 30 years from now, there's going to be different methods that are way better than this to do it. But the reality is like, so I don't want you to get stuck with the method because what happens is you end up trying to defend the method as opposed to trying to defend the outcome. Nail on the head. Amazing. <laughs> Right. So question number two, uh, customer reviews or customer interviews? If you had to choose only one amongst these two, which one would you go for? Uh, it's very interesting. Um, so as a, there's a product I'm working on because uh, one, customer reviews. Um, so like one of my least favorite metrics of all times is a net promoter score. <laughs> okay. Because what it does is is... I, I am sure there are times where you gave people a good net promoter score when they didn't deserve it because it's literally like, well, I don't want to get them in trouble, right? Yeah. So you're yeah. confounding basically whether you would do it or not to whether it's good enough. The other part for me, the hard part is they say, would you refer this to a friend? I'm like, well, 
in my world that like, well, they have to be in the right context. They have to be, you know, having that problem. Like I don't rec, I don't take recommendations lightly. And so it becomes one of those things where it's like, I need to know a lot about them before I say, oh, this is the thing you should do. And so to be honest, it, it, in my world, it has a default to be way lower than what most people do. So I would give it a three, you would give it an eight, though we meant the same thing, <laughs> right? The third th the problem with it is that you end up with people who say, no, I, I wouldn't recommend it because they're afraid of it growing too fast and losing the services they have or being boxed out. And so you have some people who say no, because it's like, no, I wouldn't recommend it because I want to keep it for myself. <laughs> And so, and so, and, and most people would say, well, we can look at averages and it's all relative and, and you, you can do some of that, but ultimately I got to get back to the causation, right? And so, so to me, reviews are one of those things where most people don't tell you, like my favorite is if you look at how people consume reviews to help them make progress, the first thing they do is they look at, there's two really important metrics around it. One is they look at the bad reviews first. Though everybody leads with the good reviews and most of them assume the good reviews are actually contrived, though the, most of them aren't, they feel they're contrived. And then what they do is they assess the bad reviews to see two things. Is what they're complaining about relevant? So it's like an Amazon will be like, oh, the shipment was two days late. Like, okay, that has nothing to do with the product. Who cares? Okay, that's, that, that's not a reason not to buy it. So they're looking for reasons to eliminate, right? The, 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 the other part though is, is that you end up with um, uh, people not uh, of the the time of the of the of the review, like so, if it happened two years ago, it's not as relevant as if it happened last week, and so you just start to realize like the the way people look at it is oh, it's five stars or it's four and a half stars. Somebody looks at the the accumulation number and then they jump to these other metrics, and so part of it is to understand how do people use this to make decisions, and nobody's taking the time to actually help improve the review process so you can do it. And so we're using jobs to be done as a way in which to actually build a, an AI to do reviews, to help people do reviews in a better way so we can handle the entire process. Yeah, yeah. So I would so always do that handled, It's probably part. interviews is the way. I would always do interviews. Yeah, yeah. I do Amazing. interviews every day. I do a thousand interviews a, a year easily. Right, right. No, I, I mean, the experience of going through that uh, shoe buying interview was itself, uh, you know, really eye opening. I'm like, it does really, I'm, I'm not able to get over it because it's like, wow, I did not even think about it. But this was but, the reason. But, but, but this is the point. I can't do jobs on myself. Yeah. You can't do jobs on yourself because at some point you, you have your own biases of what you're doing. But by yeah. asking questions like this, like, oh, most people don't connect their actions through space and time. I signed up for the gym. I bought some shoes. I went and worked out like the, like, but you don't realize all the thinking that had to happen between those events to yeah. cause you to buy the shoes. Question number three, you say that uh, embedded in the anomalies of the past is the DNA of the future. It's intriguing. Uh, again, I would love for you to expand a little on this. Yeah. So, so one of the things I learned very early on in clay clay and I, I, I had the luxury of having four hours a quarter for 27 years with clay. And one of the things he, he, one of the, one of the theories he built is how, do, how does a theory get built? And one of the things we realized is new theories only come from anomalies of old data. And so it's when the, it, the anomaly is basically where the data doesn't fit the old model. And so you start to realize that, that when you start to see these anomalies, um, and, and they, they, they don't seem to make sense. They typically are what we call the beginning of non-consumption or where people want to make progress and they can't. And it's like, oh, I can't explain that. That's, that's an anomaly. And what we've been taught in science is to actually eliminate or to remove the anomalies or come up with a reason to remove the anomalies. And I've spent my entire life only studying the anomalies because the anomalies actually have all the characteristics of where things are going to change and why they're going to change. And so I could look at something. So like I did some work with uh, a fast food restaurant on milkshakes in 1994. And we found out about a, a breakfast shake where we had to put protein in it and a yogurt smoothie. We came up with all these ideas and it didn't go anywhere, but literally seven years later, it took off like there was no tomorrow. And so part of it is to realize you can see the job in the struggling moment, but the market wasn't ready for it to actually be ready.
That's awesome. I I think I remember the story where people actually bought these uh, shakes uh, in the because morning. They were during in the car, right? Yeah, in the morning in the car, it was yeah, like it was yeah. it was a, that's the funny part. They say it's enough carbohydrates. It was fat. It was balanced. I don't really yeah. know what's in it, but it, like it keeps me full until I get to work. Yeah, it's like. Yeah it's milk. It's like, what's the difference between that and cereal? And you're just literally like, wow. And you just start to realize like it had all these different properties. And it's like, okay, well, what can I do to make that better? And, and these were like three anomaly stores that sold a ton of things in the morning that made no sense. And that's where we studied and, and were able to come up with new innovations around it. Right. So question number four, uh, this is like, I was having a conversation with our common friend, April Dunford, and she said something yeah. very interesting. She said, uh, talk to customers um, saying that uh, talk to customers is not probably the solution for every marketing and sales problem. Would you agree? Mm -hmm. Marketing has to actually combine the the corporate entity and and the the positioning and the investors and the and the the morale of the organization and the product people at the same time. And so I need like like I need to have a vision for the customer on one side. I still have to have. Like I can't tell customers one thing and tell investors something else, and next thing I know, they're, they'll I'll be in trouble. And so part of this is to realize how do I align those things. And so sometimes they're. But what I would say is like uh, to be honest, one of the projects I'm doing right now is like I'm actually talking to investors to say what, why did you choose this as an investment over something else, and what are your expectations, and what progress are you trying to make, and how did you choose this over ten other things. And so if we understand the jobs the investors make, and now we understand the jobs the customers make, we now actually from marketing's job is to integrate. And so it's not always just a customer problem. It's an integration problem. I love it. I think, it. And and I think and she and was Nate, coming Nate from a different perspective. We were together last week or a week, week before, and we, we talked about this. And it's, it's, again, there's no silver bullet. This is, this is about taking, taking a step back, seeing a perspective, seeing how things work, and connecting dots. Yeah, yeah. I think she was coming from the perspective wherein customers are, um, you know, great explainers of the problems that they have, but they are probably not the best people to uh, suggest solutions. So it's like, oh, while yeah. you listen to them, um, you have to think on behalf of the customer and not based on what they are saying or oh, what they ask you. To yeah, do. yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah, yeah. so from that, like, I've got a huge view on this one. So this is the thing is, is the customers don't even know it's possible. And so half the time they're telling you about stuff they only know. And they say, oh my God, like at Basecamp, we kept having people go like, I need a calendar. Like, I, like I'm, I'm trying to schedule it. I need a calendar. And, the, and we kept asking people like, well, why do you really need a calendar? They didn't need a calendar. They need a place to schedule. And all Basecamp would tell you was what they could see, what was scheduled. And so all we did was create an inverse that basically said, here's, here's all the open spaces. And everybody said, oh my God, thank you for building the calendar. We didn't build a calendar. We literally just built an inverse view of the of what they could see as uh, current events. Right, right, absolutely. Cool. So here's the final rapid fire, and this is a choice one. Um, would you interview someone who recently purchased your product, or would you interview someone who moved to a competitor from yours? Ah, good question. Um, so I do interviews. So first of all. I do interviews on every one of my customers, or not necessarily the repeats, but but most of them. Um, and I don't do the interviews. I actually hire people to do them because I can't do my own interviews, right? Um, um, what I will say is that that in my business, it's a little different. Like the, I have probably 70% repeat. And so there's a very large repeat. And, and I don't think about why don't people come back. But like what I'll say is is depending on a business and where they're at and what's going on, I think of it as is growth comes from two things. How do I get more people in and how do I get less people to leave? And so depending on what's going on and what's what which one is more broken, it might be that I have to actually fix churn first, right? Before I actually lead more I don't want to lead more people in and just have them churn, right? And so part of it is I might have to fix churn. So it might be that I like if it's established and it's growing and it's there, it's like what what um what caused you to leave that product? Um, but when I do that interview, I actually get two interview, two stories because I get the story of how they came in the first place and then I get the story of why they left in the second place. And so then for, for 10 interviews, I get 20 stories. Right, right. And yeah. the interesting part is whether they're switching to you or from you, it's about the job. So think of it as like uh, in the US, we have AT&T and Verizon and like whether somebody's switching from AT&T to Verizon or Verizon to AT&T, the job is the same. Yeah. 
yeah no totally makes a lot of sense and um, the core point i take from that is uh, you know first probably uh, fix the leaky bucket before trying to fill in too much or at least That's prioritize right. which one is more broken yeah, yeah I, i would just look at both if i don't have enough people coming in i got to do something here's the other one is what happens if i don't have a product yet what do i do so this is my bonus question <laughs> what do you do when you don't have a product and i would say what you do is you go find the competitor that when your product exists they will stop using it wow right so so i helped a long time ago on facebook marketplace before it even existed yeah what, what we did we went and studied etsy and craigslist and 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 ebay and said what caused people to put things up there and sell them what caused people there to go there and buy and found out all the struggling moments wrapped around it and then built it that made it easier just to do a facebook yeah it, it killed it <laughs> well it didn't exist and we just literally were able to say what caused you to say today's the day you're going to sell something this is absolutely brilliant thank you so much i think we have covered a lot probably in the last yeah. one hour i didn't even realize that uh, you know one hour just went by thank you so much really really appreciate your time thanks man.